Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. So it's been an emotional roller coaster since the last episode, and we have since elected Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as president and vice president. Cool news team. Uh, as I've heard others say, it's better to try and repair or rebuild a house while it isn't on fire. And I will say personally, if I have to listen to Trump's voice one more time, it will be one too many times. I am over it. So <laughs> I'm not going to get into much about this, but only to say that the context for my interview, this episode was with Katie Otto, and it was happening the day before the election. Uh, she lives in Philly, and there was a lot of unrest going on there, and there still is. She was also pregnant during our interview and has since had her baby, so that's exciting. Um, and so that was sort of like the backdrop to our conversation. Uh, it's not the whole thing, but it's just, it's it's in the air there. So I've known Katie for, I think, just over 10 years. Katie's originally from D.C., and I remember being given her name multiple times from folks before I even knew her, being told that she was like the one to contact for booking in D.C. And I, I had originally met Katie after reaching out to her, uh, seeing her name as I I believe, a panelist at uh, the National Sexual Violence Resource Center conference in D.C. when I worked at Day One, which is the Sexual Assault and Trauma Resource Center of Rhode Island, and she worked at Men Can Stop Rape. Uh, but, you know, I'd recognized her name from the music scene, so I emailed her and we ended up getting lunch. And I was also on the board of the Girls Rock Camp Alliance with her bandmate Dion uh, shortly thereafter. So... Since then, our bands have done some short tours together a few times, including maybe most hilarious, one of my most hilarious or terrible tour stories, which was involved her band, Trophy Wife, and my band, Whore Paint, flying to the West Coast, borrowing a van from Hosey from Helmsley and Lozen in Tacoma, which was very, very nice, and amps from Hosey's bandmate, Ben Varellen. And about three shows into the tour, we all got norovirus, and proceeded to take turns getting sick on and off for the rest of the tour down to LA and then back up to Tacoma in the van together. It was terrible. Uh, <laughs> when we returned the van, it was so bad that we smudged it with sage. It was it was a bad news. Uh, I will say I was proud that we played at least three songs every show and that no one actually puked on stage, even though it seemed likely at different points. Anyway, since we both had babies a few years ago, we've only seen each other, I think, once um, at, at a show that they played up here. So it was really great to catch up with her. Uh, she's one of my favorite people in the world, super smart, a great communicator, a connector, and just a really thoughtful and engaged activist, not to mention being just a wildly awesome drummer. So as far as her bio is concerned, she's played in many bands over the years, including Rainbow Crimes, Callow Hill, Trophy Wife, Del Cielo, and Bald Rapunzel. I'm sure there are others, but those are the main ones that I know about. And she also started a record label, Exotic Fever, with her bandmate Bonnie from Bald Rapunzel. Um, and that label has just had its 20th anniversary this year. So in our conversation, we cover everything from learning about music from like $5 Fugazi shows to copper snare drums to intentionally parenting white boys. I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview. And after that, please stick around and uh, I'll talk about valuing women's work in music. All right. Uh, I definitely want to thank our sponsors. There's the always fabulous Earthquaker Devices, which just came out with the Time Shadows collaboration pedal with uh, Death, by Audio, Death by Audio to celebrate the pending release of the pedal movie. I am super psyched about both the pedal and the movie. Uh, for real though, the pedal sounds like it turns your, your, you automatically into the soundtrack of Suspiria, whatever you play. It's totally wild and awesome and creepy and spooky and fabulous. And even though it was a limited edition, I think it shows the magic that they can make. It really displays that. I also appreciate the collaboration piece to that. So, uh, for my Earthquaker YouTube comment of the episode, I will share this comment by user RTM333. Quote, can't believe I was lucky enough to snag one of these things. I feel like I won the lottery of doom. Unquote. You can learn more at earthquakerdevices.com. All right. I also want to 
sh- shout out to Studio 121. Skylar is a Berkeley student and she helps edit these podcasts and she can also help you with all of your audio needs at a reasonable price. Editing, production, recording, jingles, bumper music, whatever your heart desires, reach out to her official Studio 121 on Instagram. Last but not least, our final and newest sponsor, Bookworm Effects, who recently uh, released the awesome Seth's Fuzz, which you should definitely check out. Uh, Bookworm rules. Brian is super nice and supportive, and all of his petals are named after books. What's to dislike? So, for example, Seth's is after Karen Russell's Swamplandia, in which a family names all of its alligators Seth, and it has a rad alligator illustration um, on the petal, So, and it's pink. A winner already. Seth sounds uh, great on guitar. It sounds great on bass. It has a photo cell and that's like light sensitive for cool noise making. It's great. Uh, so if you're in the market for a fuzz, definitely check into it. He's got a rad demo where he plays Army of Me by Bjork. There you go. That's enough. You should buy it. Check out bookwormeffects.com. Uh, these sponsors support the podcast and I hope you support them too. Check out the show notes for links uh, to all of the sponsors and to Katie's info as well. With that, here is my interview with Katie Adam. Welcome to Midriff. Yay, thank you. I'm very happy to join you and be here today. I am so happy that you are here. You're fabulous. Uh, And we haven't gotten a chance to talk actually like face-to-face video or in person or anything in a number of years. It's been since we either of us had kids, I think. We had that. um, Well, there was the one time coming up with my band. Oh, yeah, your band came up the one time. Yes, yes. So, So we've seen each other once in like five years. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Which is wild. So this is great. So thank you. Um, All right. Can you introduce yourself for folks who might not know you, your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Yes. So uh, my name is Katie Otto and my pronouns are she and her. And um, I grew up uh, in the DC metropolitan area and started playing drums when I was 17. After the thing that made me want to go play drums was I went to Lollapalooza in 1995 and I saw Hole and I saw Patty Chamel from Hole playing drums and it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I came home and I told my parents that I was going to play drums and I think they were a little skeptical. They were sort of like, you, you played piano and you quit. And I said, I will never quit the drums. And they said, can we hold you to that? And I said, yes, I will never quit the drums. So I had the good experience of when I was first starting to play drums of I, I guess going to tons of free or $5 Fugazi shows all over the city. Uh, the first one that I went to was at the Washington Monument, and it was a protest show of some kind. I regret to say that I don't remember what we were protesting. I'm sure it was something bad. Um, but, <laughs> I, but, I hope you weren't protesting something good. Yeah, yeah. But it was a free, it was a rally of some sort. Yeah. And it was amazing. And actually, like, a couple got engaged on stage, which I don't think happened at many Fugazi concerts, but no. there were thousands of people there. And I just thought that this was kind of a normal way live music was. I thought that the most popular band in your city did tons of things for social justice <laughs> and also completely slayed and were wonderful. <laughs> and then I, I, so I think I had a little bit of a confused idea. Oh, and they would tell people not to you know, hurt each other or, or like mosh into each other. So I think like ha- having that as uh, that was sort of like my idea of what it was to be a big band was yeah. behaving like that. Wow. And they all, and they would also like own the means of production and would, would put out their own records. It did give me a bit of a skewed idea. I think of how DIY functioned everywhere. So how did you feel when you realized that that was perhaps not the case? 
Well, I think in DC, even at that time, like there were a lot of women and girls playing in bands and it wasn't that uh, shocking or, uh, but then the first time I started to tour even a little bit out of DC, there were sort of a surprise that, (laughs) or, or like the backhanded compliments of, I didn't, I saw you get up there and I, I, then I thought, whoa, she actually knows how to play. Oh God. It's it's meant to be a compliment, but the compliment also just feels terrible. Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Or I've never seen a girl play who could actually play. And then I just got used to being in a bar and I would take a napkin and I would write a list. And I was like, here's 20 people who are a hundred times better than me. Go check them out. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Uh, I think the worst was that there was one guy who came up to me and said, it really makes me wonder, you know, seeing you hit it that hard, what happened to you as a child? Oh, God. And I was like, wow, this is sick on so many levels. Wow. You kind of learn to just walk away. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. You just got to walk away. You can't, you can't, you can't handle every battle like that. Yes, yes. Uh, but so that, and then I guess um, a few years into playing music, I started an independent record label in DC called Exotic Fever Records with my friend Bonnie, who was the first person I ever played music with. And it was mostly because she had some friends who had a band um, called the Halo Project, and they were mostly a studio project, but she loved them and nobody was going to put it out. So she said, Well, I found a duplication place, or, um, and I'll, I'll just make a hundred copies and sell them at shows. And then, um, I said, well, I'll help you. And then all of a sudden other people said, well, will you put out our thing too? And we were sort of startled because we, we didn't, I mean, we started it when we were 21 and 22 and we, all of a sudden we had a record label going. Um, but the neatest thing about DC was that there were so many women, not just playing in bands, but running record labels and they were so accessible. So very early on people like Kim Coletta with her label DeSoto and, um, Jenny Toomey and Kristen Thompson from Simple Machines would all take phone calls from us. And I could say, we don't know how to put out a seven inch and they would walk us through it. And Simple Machines had like their cool guide to putting out a seven inch. So, and they didn't treat us like they just thought they, the assumption was that we could do anything we wanted and that we were fully capable. Um, So I really don't know that we would have stuck with it, except that there were women just a few years older than us that were so supportive, both supportive and accessible. That's so awesome. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of spaces where people, especially if you're growing up kind of in the middle of nowhere, as I was, like there, there weren't a lot of role models that were so accessible. So that's just, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I was a, a, you know, a nerdy, like teenage Jawbox fan, like a total fangirl. And then mm-hmm. I, and then Kim Colette is on the phone with me for 45 minutes explaining things to me. And I'm nobody. I'm just a nobody. To, so just I think that level of uh, friendliness and accessibility was wonderful, you know, and to do it with my first bandmate. We had a band when we were 17 and 16 called Bald Rapunzel that we did for five years. So so she was my bandmate in that. And then our friend Sarah Clem joined, too. I will say that in the in the years since, it's really changed because that was all very pre-internet and digital music. And so people would buy things in a different way than they buy what things. Quaint time. Yeah. Yeah. People <laughs> wanted to buy physical objects. Uh-huh. So. Because oh. <laughs> it's been 20 years, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. This year is 20 years. And how many releases have you put out? Uh, so the last one, oh, I might need to just do a quick fact check. We're in the 60s. I know that. Okay. That's and a lot. The, yeah. Uh, so we also we also happily just did a repress of one of our most best uh, one of our best selling releases, which is the War on Women um, ten inch. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last release is oh, our last release was Exotic Fever sixty seven. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's like so many. So, but I am planning on giving my uh, my ch- my second child a release number because my first child has a release number, and Bonnie's child has a release number. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, I don't know if any other record label has done that, but I figure it's it's a creative thing. Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. So so tomorrow, <laughs> on that note, uh, tomorrow's the election day. There's been rough stuff going on in Philly. You're eight and a half months Ugh. pregnant. How how yeah. are things feeling? We're in the middle of quarantine. <laughs> 
What's life? Well, I um, and my husband is going to do some poll watching. I, I'm going to be doing data entry at home because uh, it's a little hard for me to say no to things. But during a pandemic, I just at at 37 weeks pregnant, I was like, maybe I can do other helpful tasks at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been a very difficult time in Philadelphia. And last week there was also the horrific murder of Walter Wallace, who was a black man in West Philadelphia who was experiencing a mental health crisis. And um, there's been a lot of unrest in the city and um, a lot of which I don't know if people are even quite seeing what it's looking like. There was a horrible incident of a black mother who was, you know, just leaving where the area was of the protest and she was pulled out. Her nephew was pulled out. She was driving him home. The two of them were pulled out and beaten by police and it was caught on camera. And then her baby who was two, who was in the back seat was pulled out of the car by police who then said, Oh, he's, he was walking around barefoot. Like nobody cared about him, which was a total lie. And in the, in the fray of all this, he had uh, hearing aids, which are quite expensive, which were lost and both she and the baby were injured. So they have a civil rights attorney now, but yeah, it's a, so the, the, this is the backdrop against which we're holding this hotly contested election. I find it very frightening. Yeah. The National Guard is here, which I don't think makes people feel great going to the polls. There's a lot of, um, you know, both mainstream journalists, but also alt-right terrifying quote-unquote journalists coming here to watch what's going on. Uh-huh. So it's it's a... So it's a rough ride. I hope it's a little yeah. calmer where you are. It's a wild time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. So so I feel like having all of this happen on top of like not being able to play music, I feel like is kind of a wild thing. How's that feeling for you? Well, yes, especially because that's usually the point of gathering for folks like us and mm-hmm. the place of community. And um, I did since this, it was disappointing. This, this summer was going to be the 20th anniversary festival for my record label. And of course, early on, we canceled it, the in-person when we realized that it was not a safe thing to hold with COVID. But um, I did still have a virtual festival was, you know, I thought it came off pretty well. It's not exactly your dream of how you do things, but people just would go live on Facebook live and Mm -hmm. do sets. And it's um, still up on, on YouTube. You can watch all the, there's like one video of the whole long thing and then individual videos. Um, And I think it, I think people felt good about it. They, I I encourage people to share a little about, you know, their, how they came to the label and um, anything going organizing in their communities now. And um, so that was pretty great. It is a little hard because I've had a few friends say, you know, I'm so sick of live stream music. And I mean, I, okay, I get it then, but for some, some of us, it's, you know, can be very comforting and that's also all we got really. Yeah. There's nothing else. Like literally I just hang out in my basement all day and sometimes I pick up a guitar. Yeah. There we Uh, go. (laughs) Yeah. So I really appreciate it and enjoyed it. And we did it um, as a, we encourage people to make donations to, there's a really wonderful, grassroots group here in Philadelphia called the black and brown workers cooperative. And Mm -hmm. so we sold shirts and tote bags and we were able to raise a couple of hundred dollars, um, for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I feel like even just the, the, it's like a whole different way of coordinating things too, to like put on a live show versus an, I mean, obviously some of the skills are transferable, but there's like a whole technological piece of that to be able to get the recordings to turn out and everything. Yeah. All right, let's let's scoot in and talk a little bit about gear, shall we? Oh, great. Yeah. All right. So so what was your very first like experience with gear? Well, I guess the I, mean, I guess the first gear I had was the used drum kit I bought, which was kind of a disaster. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I didn't really know any better. It was fine for what it was. Uh-huh. Um, I do remember that the symbols had to be held together with some weird configuration of dish towels that I had to put. There were the, the holes were too big on the symbols. Oh, they were too that I had okay. to put dish towels, and uh, for some reason I had like multiple, maybe three, two or three floor toms that didn't match. I, <laughs> there was there was a lot going on. Yeah, I, I remember like early on, like bringing that drum kit places and getting kind of mocked. Um, so uh, then the first drum kit I bought was a Pearl Export, fairly simple drum kit, mm-hmm. 
and I, you know, it was an interesting experience. Um, I got that at sort of some kind of guitar centery type place, but I had the good fortune beyond that of getting to go to a really cool place in College Park, Maryland called Atomic Music. Um, I actually literally just bought a bass from them on oh. the internet. Yes. Oh, they're the most wonderful people yeah. and the 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 least uh, I've experienced sexism while buying equipment uh, of any place I've gone. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Just they're so supportive. And my uh, my first bandmate, Bonnie, used to work there um, and she learned to do repairs and she taught some lessons. And so that was that was good. But um, it took me a long time to get to, I guess, play enough on other people's equipment to realize what I really liked. Yeah. It was sort of like, is this functional? And then it <laughs> kind of moved from that from, Oh, this is amazing. And so when, mm. after about 11 years of playing, I realized, Oh, whenever I've had an amazing experience playing drums, it's been a Ludwig kit. So I mm. got, I got a Ludwig kit. I used Ludwig um, kit. And I, I did one thing that was great was that there was a guy at atomic, um, uh, Steve, who was very good at tuning drums. So I did learn mm-hmm. to tune pretty well. Um, and I found that I could do, I could do a lot with good heads and the ability to tune, but it was funny. Cause after I got, you know, nobody really wandered up to me and wanted to talk gear when I had my Pearl export uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I went to having this Lud- <laughs> Ludwig kit. And all of a sudden I'm in these weird conversations that I've never been in before with like, and I will say mostly dudes at the end of a show where I was like, yeah, this is, four four ply cherry maple we can talk (laughs) we can talk about it you want to know what year it is all right i guess we're doing this yeah get in um, there yeah and then a lot of opinions about what i could do like if i like i how i could muffle like like yeah yeah i guess i could do that Mm -hmm. uh, but I, i think that the experience of drummers is never quite as intense as i mean at that time i was playing with dion and trophy wife and she had her setup, which, oh, invited so much gear talk <laughs> because it was like a split bass and guitar cab yeah. and like the, the AB pedal. And the thing is, like, she basically went to Atomic, explained what she wanted to do, had a person that we trusted that was like, here, this is the, I think this will be a great setup. Try it out. Tell me what doesn't work. We can exchange things. And she just wanted it to make the cool sounds. I don't think she really wanted to have those conversations, but I try, I try to be patient because I do think that maybe there's something about socialization. It kind of reminds me of like how a lot of people who've been socialized male bond about football stats and stuff. I mean, it um, could be football stats. It yeah. could be like craft beer. It could be, you know, like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sure. And I try to not get too frustrated, but I, but I, I do also think sometimes it can be a little alienating or gatekeeping or so you got to strike it. I mean, there was this one guy who said to me once, it would look so much cooler if you just put your crash symbol, like the way you play, it would look so much cooler if they were really high. And I said, okay, but that would, that seems like, like unnecessary expended energy to hit them. Like a Um, John Stanier, like, yeah, I just, I guess, man, I don't know. And and, okay. I mean, I won't lie. There is something to, I know when I'm, it's not like I'm not, I don't have a performer in me. I know what theatrical drumming looks like more than, so I, I, I don't even blame it, but I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going <laughs> to, he's like, you could put him up like a foot more. I was like a foot, a foot, a foot is like this much more in my arm. So that sounds um, uncomfortable. Um, but I actually, I think the most excited I ever got talking about gear was I went on a tour with my friend Steph from North Carolina's band resistor. And she had this amazing all copper, like star classic snare. And it sounded so cool. It was like the, the best snare sound. And then I really did nerd out about drums um, because I, I just hadn't heard a copper drum before. And it sounded so different from wood. And I, um, that year for my, my family was sort of like, what do you want for Christmas? I told everyone, can you guys just go in together? There's this one factory I found that makes these. They're super heavy. And I will say it was funny because I did get pulled over trying to travel to the West Coast with it. And they said, what, it, you know, the people were TSA were like, this isn't like a drum that we've seen. Mm. What, what's going on here? And I just thought, oh my gosh. I said, yeah, they're pretty, you know, they're not that common. These copper star classics are like, this is very strange. We've seen plenty of <laughs> snare drums. And I was like, do you want to know the factory that makes them? They're just really good drums. Do you want to hear it? It was just so, so that was another gear situation. Yeah. 
Oh, that's funny. Yeah, because I, I remember, because did you get that right before we went on tour? Yes, oh, that, that was yeah, the trip. I remember that. that. Like going to California with, with you all and going to the West Coast was the trip. And I was like, are we going to miss our plane because they're worried that this is the bomb or something? <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. And then I was like, I was like resisting the urge with TSA to say, it's not a bomb, but it's the bomb. I was ah, like, Katie, don't, don't do it. Don't, don't do, do it. it. Don't, don't do it. Don't do or, it. Or maybe just do it. Because I just funny. wanted to do it so much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah that that thing sounds awesome yeah it's that's, very that's cool some, that's some gear that i could nerd out about yeah but i don't really want to nerd out about what brand it is or like what it co- i mostly i'm just like yeah it's so cool we could make drums out of wood we can make drums out of copper yeah um, yeah yeah more about uh, like what it what it's made of and what it sounds like rather than like the brand or whatever yes yes yeah, yeah. But I wonder if it's different for, and um, I'm a huge fan of Madeline Campbell's zine, Women in Sound. That's a lot of stuff about audio engineering. Mm-hmm. And I I do wonder a little bit about if those gear conversations feel a little different because so much of audio engineering is gear related. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't want to assume that there are no people who've been socialized as women and girls who don't enjoy a good gear talk. I just... There definitely are. I'm. I know that 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 there are. I like a good gear talk. That's yeah, why yeah. I'm running this podcast. But <laughs> yes, uh, yes. But I also recognize that not everybody does, and that those conversations can be super alienating for folks, depending on how they go. I think that if if it's also approached with an air of excitement and possibility, rather than a knowledge like a, I don't know, a power with rather than a power over. Because mm. at the end of the day. I don't know. I always think about um, being young and obsessively watching 120 minutes and recording it so I could rewind all the videos and seeing Hum, who were like one of my favorite bands at the time, and whose gear looked like trash. And the (laughs) the drummer especially had a drum kit that looked like garbage. And it felt so awesome to me because I was like, oh, he's so good. It sounds so good. It looks like trash like I have. Right. Like you can shred on trash. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like figuring out like what role does the gear actually play above and beyond what you're actually creating. And there are, there is, I also do like some of the nerd nerdy uh, stuff around symbols. And I don't know Mm. if anyone's ever gone into this, but like there's corners of the internet where people will talk about how they bury their symbols in the dirt. Have you heard about this? No. Tell me. to, to age them and okay. to like get that like green and yeah I mean that that's like some it's like because it also like intersects a little with like some witchy stuff that I'm into so Ooh. I'm just like oh people are burying their symbols I, I kind of don't know that it does anything but the idea being that like a brand new off the off the shelf 22 inch Zildjian is not going to sound as good as something that you've had for 10 years or although, yeah you know you don't want to have cracks and stuff but you want to get that aged to perfect, like a, like a fine wine. <laughs> so, yes. And I guess ride. a place where, where, where my gear headness does come out is drumsticks because mm. I, my favorite type of drumsticks are Vic Firth wood tip drumsticks. And I don't like the sound of a plastic tip. And I, mm-hmm. and I've been given boxes before of like, Hey, look, we have these surplus drumsticks and they, you know, break immediately. And yeah. So maybe that's that to me that's a place where my gear nerdiness comes out. Is it because I guess it's a, something is that, a drumstick a, does that count as gear? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. I mean you're hitting it's part of the, you can't do it without it. So yeah. 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 Uh but I think that it's interesting that you're pointing to drumsticks in particular because that's the point of contact, right? Yes. You're yes. actually touching it. So there's something and it feels more personal to me. Like I don't know. We play shows sometimes, I'll play on whatever kind of kit. I but I also understand that there, with my friends who I've played with who play stringed instruments, it can be a total world of difference. Where yeah, and I have seen it cause the entire difference of how scared or freaked out my poor stringed friend feels. With like, they like walk in and they're like, "Oh, that's the thing. Oh no, I should have, <laughs> I should have found a way to brought the thi- to bring my thing because it, it could sound like a totally different band." Yeah, and, and it's, I, I guess that's true with drums, but I don't know if it's quite as pronounced. Well, it's the comfort level. Like you're just used to things feeling a particular way, and if they don't, then you kind of sometimes can get sh- thrown out of your mindset around how yes. you normally perform. You know? Yeah, for me, it's 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 a, a little more distracting if it's gear where you know the floor tom with the famous leg that you're like hoping stays oh, up with yeah. a, str- a string. Like to, to, it's, to me, it's that lack of confidence of like. 
if I hit this, is it going to fall over? And right. if it falls over, can I use other parts of my body to hold it up? <laughs> and how ridiculous will I look for how long? Uh-huh. And does the person who nicely runs up to try to help, are they equipped to help? Yeah. I wonder they... about that. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I, as a person in the audience, frequently I'm like, do I run up and help and put the symbol back or do I just wait? Are they almost done with the end of the song? I'm not sure. You know, like it's, it's a, it's a hard one. Stressful situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a hard one. <laughs> Am I going to get hit by the bass player? Like there's a lot of, a lot of variables yes. there. Am I going to cause them more trouble? Right. Is this, this is this just a uh, sort of a chronic problem that has no solution? Yeah. 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 Is it part of their vibe, like knocking things over? Yeah. There's a lot of things. <laughs> and then I felt really bad because at one show, somebody, the, the drum was so broken that someone just volunteered to hold it for the whole set. And I'm like, <gasps> I'm literally playing this loud noise right by your face. Like this just doesn't feel good or right. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a loving space when I'm smacking the cymbal right by your ear. No, no, it's fine. I have earplugs in. I'm just like, oh, gotta wow. love them though. Wow. That's, that's some commitment right there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's get in a little bit around how this all connects to gender and identity. So like what is so we're talking generally about gear, but like what is what have your connections been around gender and identities and gear and things like that? So, well, I, I think one thing I would say is there did seem like it did make me feel a little sad that it seemed like for many audience members uh, of a certain ilk, a particular flip switched when just with the simple act of me buying this different kind of kit mm. where it was like a stamp of authenticity right you know like the young woman they see loading this like ludwig kit is given a little more of a oh she knows what she's doing than i was with my pearl export kit and that that was a little i think that not only is there some gender stuff bound up in that but also some class right stuff and i have had these conversations too with friends particularly you know i grew up middle class or, or upper middle class. I'm not exactly sure somewhere in there. And I have many, I've played music with many friends who grew up working class, who are working class. And I think, um, in Europe, I noticed that the one time tro trophy wife toured there, there was a much different culture around gear sharing with venues. And it was just like assumed like the venue has the gear mm -hmm. and I don't know, the leftist in me likes the idea that, you know, somebody who just recorded a demo and got this brand new, super huge van to tour in and all this flashy gear would not have a leg up over people who've played their hearts out on right. something a little substandard. I don't know. Yeah. I think about that a lot, like with regard to gear culture and who gets to even participate in that. Like, you know, yeah, it's, that's be, a very real be, thing. It was only, it's it sort of like, it almost took years for me to even know what kind of gear I liked because it's sort of like you had to get to a point where you were accepted enough in the, even in the subculture that people would willingly share their gear with you mm -hmm. so that you could try different things uh, or that you were playing maybe a venue that was nice enough to have a higher line backline drum kit. I mean, I've seen it all across the map with the, the backline drum kit that a club could have. It could be a total piece of trash that's mm -hmm. worse than anything you've ever had yourself. Or it could be something that you're like, I've never touched anything like this in my life. Right. I, I almost feel like it's like has some similarities with like fine dining where maybe there's food that you would never know that you would love because it's just like the opportunity to even try something mm -hmm. uh, isn't before you. Mm -hmm. And I guess to me, somewhat of the gender socialization of even if I like, it just happened to be that the person who I went on tour with who had this really cool copper snare was also, you know, someone who was female identified I don't know if I would have felt like, I think I just looked at her one day. I was like, can I try that? And I don't know if maybe I would have felt a little more um, reluctant or uh, self-conscious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But I, I, I do hope that maybe, you know, because I've been playing music now for about 25 years, I hope it's a little better now. I hope that maybe there's a little more spirit of sharing and like things like your podcast, things that, that might exist that make people feel a little more welcome to have these conversations. So I hope, I, I, I hold a hope that there's a bit of a change to who gear culture is for, who runs yeah. gear culture. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that, that I do feel like there's been a real shift even in the last like five years. Um, I mean, there's still a lot to happen, obviously, but I feel like even just in as far as like marketing and things like She Shreds and Tom Tom and things like that, yeah. that have, like how to helped to sort of reframe what it looks like. Yes, yeah. I agree. Yeah. So you had said that you were influenced to start playing drums because of uh, Patty Schemmel. 
right? Yes. So why was it why was it Patty as opposed to any of the other instruments? Why the drums? I, I don't, it was so visceral to me. It was just beautiful and amazing. Uh, I kind of liked that it wasn't reliant on um, electrical power too. Mm, yeah. It was just like person powered. You know, I also, I, I think about this a lot is that I had uh, different kinds of things that I struggled with, including uh, a diagnosis of PTSD and, and, I eventually went for um, EMDR. Is that what it's called? Yeah. 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 The therapy where you hold the buzzers that, mm-hmm. that go at different times, which, and it was enormously helpful to me for managing anxiety and trauma. And, and I, as I was sitting there the first time I did it, I said, how does this work? And she said, well, it's bilateral stimulation while you're talking about things that are very disturbing and traumatizing to work through them. And I said, so if you are playing a consistent drum beat and doing that, and she said, well, her eyes lit up and she's like, that sounds like you were kind of doing do it yourself EMDR this mm. whole time. It was very exciting to me. Yeah. Yes. That's uh, cool. I hadn't thought about that before. That makes a lot of sense. She said that anything that is bilateral and repeated, so swimming, jogging, uh, but, but the key was you had to be sort of like processing. processing it. Yeah. And, and I said, well, I definitely have done that. Um, and so that was exciting to me. I have this great book. I don't know if you've ever seen it called When the Drummers Were Women. No, I haven't. It's it's like a sort of like an anthropological deep dive into it's sort of this 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 musical tradition that was very much in matrilineal and matriarchal cultures and was connected to things like fertility and the farm crops and childbirth and just that was pretty neat to know that Dang. they're that they're like in agrarian societies or in um so like migrating community, this was like, it was always considered something that women did. Women were drummers. And I thought that was pretty cool too. That is cool. Yeah. I, I've, I've heard that story like yes. generally culturally, but I have, yes. I have not read that book. That sounds rad. Have you, have you noticed a difference in the your experience as a musician based on like the gender makeup of the band that you're in? Um, yes. Although I would say that I think there are also other components too. Um, so I have been in bands that were all white and I have been in bands that were multiracial. And that also, I think plays a role. I think I've also been in a lot of bands where there are members of the band who are queer. And so we've played lots of like queer spaces Mm -hmm. when it comes to gender. One thing that was funny, my band bald Rapunzel, my first band, it was a co-ed band. We were always read to be two couples, which nobody Mm -hmm. was dating. Nobody in the Uh band was dating. That was annoying. To me. like we were just like so annoyed by it although we did sometimes rely on it when things got a little weird because we we're pretty young we're traveling and we just sort of had an unwritten code that if things got weird we would turn into a fake couple band yeah. just because it was getting weird <laughs> getting to be a weird vibe yeah but a lot of times at the end of the show people would go up to the guys in my band and try to give them the money and they're like what are you haven't you been talking to katie this whole time mm-hmm this is like really strange. Or one time we had, when I was in Del Cielo, which was three women, we brought our friend as like our roadie, but he didn't really, at, at the end of the night, all, everyone's paying him. And I was just, I was like, what are you, what this, you're paying this guy. Uh-huh. So I, I, I those are small things, but. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm saying this is like, it's as though gender is the only experience. Of course it's not. Yes. Uh, I'm wondering too about how age as you've been playing like the longer you've been playing your experience as you've gotten older. Well, it is a little bit, feels a little ridiculous when you're in your forties and your thing is called a girl band. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> I'm like, is this going to be happening if I'm still playing in my sixties? Like, uh, you know, that, that could be a little, a little funny and odd. Um, it was funny too. When I was pregnant with David and playing with trophy wife, people would sort of come up and we were read often as a couple, which we were not. And I remember these like metal guys that liked our band. Like, I think they felt like they were being very progressive. They (laughs) came up to Dion and they're like, congratulations. (laughs) And and, and my husband mouse was standing right there. And Dion was like, this is, this is all him. This is, uh, I'm not involved in this. And it's just like, you know, cause I saw, I think that also, you know, there are assumptions about, like sexuality and stuff, but especially if you're playing in a certain circuit and mm-hmm. I, I don't know, that was, I think they, they looked so proud. Like, I think these guys were like, Oh, we're going to go congratulate them. Like, look, you know, we're really, uh huh. 
we're reading this situation. I was like reading it totally. And Dion looked horrified. Dion was like, I have nothing to do with that baby. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. But I did, I will say this about uh, uh, that. I think one of my dreams in life around being pregnant was to play super loud music while super visibly pregnant because mm-hmm. it felt, it felt like a stereotype and sort of like a, you know, like an archetype bashing kind of thing to do and something that people don't expect to see. And it's like, you know, I, that was at a, like, that was a time when I hadn't really loved pregnant pictures of myself, but that then I did. Mm-hmm, Cause, mm-hmm. or, or like when I would stand up and they hadn't really seen from behind the kit and I'd be like, Whoa, look, she's super <laughs> pregnant. She played the drums and she's super pregnant. Or how far along were you when you were still playing? I played with David through seven and a half months Mm -hmm. and including shows. So, Mm -hmm. and then I got too tired with this uh, pregnancy in COVID. I've only had like one band practice and no shows. So I'm at least glad I had a band practice because I felt like I could give her a little something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did you play much while pregnant? Did you? Yeah. we definitely practiced while I was pregnant and played a few shows. We ended up, we actually did play one show. I must've been eight months pregnant i think like i was oh, around wow. there. yeah there's one there's a video of it on the internet somewhere oh my gosh you know i feel like it's like you had it's a different move for for when you're playing drums versus guitar too like i had to play yeah. it like kind of off the side of my body yep um, yep but well i had to i had to focus on okay where is the bathroom and how can i get there <laughs> like both before and after the set like yeah and, and also, I don't really care who's in line. I'm going in front of you. Right. But yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, sorry if that's TMI. No, I feel like that's, it's getting real. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But then it's also like, I, yeah, feeling bad because you can't carry gear and, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dion told me to really get over that. She's like, if we're going to do this, you're going to have to let people help you. Yeah. Like, yeah. or we're not going to do it. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I'm thinking about like the process of raising a white boy. Yes. I guess what ways do your education and experience around gender and race and identities kind of inform your parenting? I will say this. I find it very difficult to have conversations with a lot of nuance and honesty around police because from such an early age, they do get baby copaganda. And I mean, it it just sneaks in everywhere. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, it's interesting when there was all that, I don't know, Fox said that people were tweeting that Paw Patrol should be canceled and stuff, which actually like one person tweeted. It wasn't like a campaign or anything. And David, David said, well, let's talk about how Chase doesn't carry a gun or handcuffs. And I was very proud of him because he said, I said, well, he does have a net. And he said, yeah, but Chase is a little different. Chase is a little bit like what I think of as like a police officer in England. Uh, (laughs) So these are like, you know, um, but, but there are messages of like, these are, these people catch bad guys. Like these, these are the people that catch bad guys. And it's kind of a lot for, um, but I think it's, I don't, I don't really want to shield him. Like he, he has asked questions like, why are there protests? And we talk to him, honestly, he sees a mural of George Floyd and we tell him what happened to him and who he is. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe there are some people that would think we should, I try to do it in an age appropriate way, but I also try not to hide things from him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, cause it's like, you don't want, I, yeah, we're kind of on the same page as far as that's concerned. Um, but it is hard and it sometimes feels like. Um, I don't know. And it, it, it's just the level of, you know, binary good guy, bad guy stuff even is complicated. Yes, There's a yes. lot of like, you know, we're going to catch the bad guy. And then how do you create nuance around what a bad, like, what is a bad guy? What makes someone bad? You know, and are everybody, you know, it's complicated. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. Yes. I think, you know, we live on a very, in a very multiracial neighborhood, I think that can be helpful. Um, he does have a lot of questions about like if somebody has uh, black or brown skin, do they maybe come from another country? And we talk about that and mm-hmm. we talk about, you know, there are many people who've lived here for decades. And then there are people who immigrated from other countries that we have. We live in a neighborhood with a very large Cambodian immigrant population. And we talk about that in our community garden. There are garden plots that are um, from CMAC, which is the 
the uh, group that supports a lot of the Southeast Asian community members. And so I think, you know, that's, he is, is meeting and seeing people who are different from him. Yeah. There's always some new thing to, to unpack, I guess. Well, and now, you know, like to me, and he, he, I will say this, he, he very, very readily and simply understands they, them pronouns. Like he even has a friend in his school who uses they, them, like Mm -hmm. that is not, that is not hard to him at Mm -hmm. all. Like doesn't even face him. And in fact, there was, there were like two weeks where he wanted us to call him they. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, but then that only lasted two weeks. And and I think that, you know, which we did. And then after a few weeks, um, he said, I want, I want he again. Um, uh, but I thought that was kind of cool that he can have the space to experiment with what that feels like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. And the whole, the whole thing about a lot of parenting just makes me think about the ways that people become people, right? Like that's what parenting to some degree is obviously like not everything about how a person becomes a parent, uh, becomes a person is about parenting, but a, a good chunk of it is. And, you know, I feel like thinking about things like, you know, even like the burger Records scandal. Oh yeah. Uh, things like that. So I, I feel like I, I often think about the things that I can be doing in my parenting to help raise a a boy to not engage in that behavior. So what, what are your thoughts around that? Like, how do you, how do you think you prevent that? Not, not just with a five-year-old, but in general, how do, how do we get people on board with that? Well, one thing that's been a struggle for me is that even, you know, with his sort of classroom settings, none of the parents or the teachers are encouraging it, but they do really segregate by gender. Mm. And, And that is a hard one because one day I said to him, well, you know, at his old daycare, I said, why don't you ever play, you know, you really, you love your friend Vivian. Why aren't you playing with Vivian? And, you know, these other girls, he said, said, well, well, for one thing, mom, they're playing with a box of broken Barbie dolls and some of them don't have heads and they scare me. I was like, okay. (laughs) He was like, I don't like the dolls that they're all naked and their hair is cut off. I was like, okay, well, this is actually like, He's like, I would rather play with the cars and the blocks. And I was like thinking to myself, I would rather play with the cars and the blocks. And that's sad, yeah. sad, broken box. And <laughs> I, it sounded horrible. And I, I said, well, okay, you know, make, do you think that sometimes Vivian would like to play? He said, oh, yes. And I'll, I'll make sure she's invited to play. He, he also does. Um, he was disabused very quickly of the notion that like he had more physical prowess that he's like, I'm going to run faster than this friend. My, and this, like they had these like little kid races, healthy kids running. Mm -hmm. And at first he was like, I got beat by a girl. And I'm just like, yeah, she practices. (laughs) Uh You literally show up for the race and you're so (laughs) I, I think that's the way I try to handle it is. I think one thing that's good too, is that he sees that, you know, mouse and I, like I fix things on the car and mouse knows how to make coconut curry and cooks and Mm -hmm. we both clean. And so another interesting thing though, is that we have a lot of um, friends who are not parenting. And um, we also have a lot of queer friends and he sees different kinds of, I, I think that we do, we can't combat everything, but he sees enough of like, there are all different kinds of ways to live and be and our state rep is a mom of two and, and her husband is like really does like some of the more of the taking point on childcare stuff. So he sees a lot of things. We also did when he was little, get him a baby doll and a carrier so that he, yeah. And he likes that doll. He, he takes care of that doll. So how does that prevent sexual assault in the music scene? Oh, <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Yes, I guess I got a little far. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I, I I get it. I'm totally on board. I'm just for people who might be like, I don't know if that. I think, that, well, I guess what I would say is that I think that anything that can affirm the humanity of an entire gender of people from an early age, uh, anything that affirm, affirms the humanity, the bodily autonomy, uh, we do, we do also have he he is pretty good. He and his friends are really good. Like, do you want to hug or high five or just like things around consent? They're sort of like the very basic entry level c- discussions of consent, mm-hmm. um, or or even just to let him not hug adults. Like uh, that seems like uh, I feel like little kids are sometimes expected to perform like little toys or dolls in a way, and 
and I say, David, you can, you can shake hands. You can just wave by. And sometimes adult, adults, I think, especially the sort of like older adults don't like it that I've made that a choice, mm-hmm. but I, I do feel like it's a, it's like a building block and it's on a continuum mm-hmm. Yeah, of like, yeah. So, so by teaching kids at a young age that can, that their consent and consent that, that they're asking for is important and will be respected. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, is sort of like the first step in them understanding that that's how you're supposed to interact with other people in the world. Yes. Yeah. Right. Totally. So, so then once they grow up, and let's say we're talking about men in the music scene, um, like cis, cis men in the music scene. What would you say to them to make a change, to get them involved in making change? What I notice a lot and what does disappoint me, and none of us are perfect and we're all learning and I've made mistakes too, bad ones that I hope to learn and grow from, is just when it's somebody that has a lot of social capital and control, you know, has a lot of power to wield, even if only in a small space, it comes, becomes a lot harder to hold them to task, to take it seriously. But I do think that there is a resistance to people thinking that they have any social capital because the sphere is so small. Um, And I, I've even had very bizarre conversations where somebody is like, no, I I don't have any social capital. And And I, and I just think to myself, well, you're the person that plays in the popular band. You're the person that does the big shows. Like you just have to put it in. They think that if they're not like Kurt Cobain or something that they're not. Right. And I think maybe drawing parallels to things that we see with men in business and men in politics and, you know, CEOs and that kind of thing of, there are people who've been given permission to act with impunity about a range of things. And it could be a very easy slope from, Oh yeah. Like you have a bunch of people dance around you all the time. Mm-hmm. Or if we all feel like we need to rely on this person so much that we, and I, I, I felt a little stressed out around the conversations about Al Franken of like, but no, we must protect him because he's been this a great voice for us. And it wasn't, you know, what he did wasn't as bad as what these other people did. And so sort of like, okay, but can't we just expect better? Like, can't we just expect that grown men know what kind of pictures not to take and, now, what does it mean to all of the younger people if if we sort of circle the wagons on folks like this? Yeah. And, yeah. May, and maybe to tell people in the music world a little bit of what message are you sending to, to people in the audience? What message do you send when you refuse to bar someone from coming to a, a venue? Like who are, who are, who are you, who are you writing out of this culture when you make sure to make that person feel okay staying? Right. I, I will say too, though, that, um, some of my most direct experiences with this in my personal life, including uh, being like in a relationship with someone who was called out and failing to act appropriately and trying to forgive myself for making such a big mistake and learn from it. I think about it now with the internet and I think, Oh, I don't, I don't know if this is always getting us to a, a good place uh, because it just seems like things become sort of public relations wars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hope that the internet wouldn't take the place of, people having hard conversations, particularly other folks, socialized male who could have the conversation with them. So the burden doesn't just fall to, I mean, let's be real. Nobody wants to have those conversations. Right. Yeah. Nobody wants to have those conversations and it's hard and it takes a lot of work. It's like a lot of emotional labor. It's all of that. Uh, all right. (laughs) So, so as we're closing this out, we're getting a little bit towards the end here. I want to bring this back to like the, the music gear industry, because we've talked about venues a little bit. What, if you were talking to someone in the music gear industry, like someone who runs a company, for example, like whether it's a, a store or a manufacturer or something like who wanted to make change and they were asking you what to do, what would you tell them? Well, I think considering the representation of who you show in your ads and marketing materials, and and I wouldn't say just throw some women in there, that, um, but think about age, think about what kinds of, uh, so many of them are so bad, what you see as the, pic- <laughs> the pictures of who's playing something. You don't need to make everything look like bubblegum pink to make it something that a girl would like, but maybe you could show girls doing things. I think that, that we're improving in that area and, and all of these things that you talk about, like she shreds and Tom, Tom, and like there's, and then the girls rock movement in general, it's like the, mm-hmm. there are a bevy of um, images like that, but 
I also worry about a lot about marketing isn't very authentic or, um, very human. So maybe trying to encourage a a more human element to those materials Um, Mm -hmm. and to think about where you advertise them and are you running ads in magazines geared towards teen girls? Are you, how are you promoting your Facebook and Google ads? Like where, where are you doing that? And then do you do it even when you're building like a base slowly or do you do it just hoping for that spontaneous purchase? Mm -hmm. Um, and also bearing in mind that if you're really trying to reach younger kids, you kind of have to market to their parents if it's a big purchase. So, right. so I think it could be cool to show some, I don't know how you would do it exactly, but maybe, I don't know, some images of like parents and children shopping for an instrument together or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think these would be helpful starts. Yeah, totally. Um, so what are you particularly psyched to be working on right now? I know that you are you know, we're in the middle of the quarantine, you have this child coming any moment. So given that. <laughs> so I, I guess I, I, I'm really excited about the band that I do now with my friends, Alex and Leah called Rainbow Crimes. And we haven't really been able, we practiced once in the pandemic, but um, I, I look forward to the day when we can play again. We talked a little about, you know, exchanging riffs over the computer, but I'm not, I'm not quite so good at that. So I look forward to that uh, being a thing again. We do often send each other songs back and forth and try to keep the relationship going. Yeah. And then just plugging away at my small record label and trying to still, uh, technically still in the 20th year of the celebrations. So trying to let people know a little about those releases. And the other thing is trying to just also appreciate that it's okay sometimes to not be productive and to just survive and uh, get through a tough time. So I feel Mm -hmm. like maybe I should have a lot more to report, but just getting through it is one thing I'm trying to do now. Yep. (laughs) And I I do hope that we all, one thing that I'm hopeful too is uh, that some of the organizing around things like save our stages and and just different projects like that can keep going so that we don't lose all the infrastructure we've built for small DIY touring and, even medium-sized touring and live music, and that hopefully we all will resurge. Mm-hmm. And finally, a project I'm really excited about is this new, um, it's like a union of, of musicians and labels of speaking up against Spotify's policy, because I, yep. do, I do think they constitute a monopoly, and I dislike them, but I use yep. them. Because I'm as trapped as the rest of us, so, <laughs> so I'm excited. By that. I, I'm excited by that kind of organizing and people really trying to take companies like Spotify to task. Totally, cool, and excited about this new small friend. Yeah, excited yeah. to meet, meet her in two weeks. Oh my so. god, so good! <laughs> I am excited to uh, to see pictures. Thank you, thank you so much, and eventually meet her. All right, uh, so. So how can listeners uh, stay in contact with you or hear more from you or your projects? So my record label is Exotic Fever and it's at exoticfever.com. And my current band, Rainbow Crimes, is rainbowcrimes.bandcamp.com. And then I have other bands I've done, Trophy Wife and Del Cielo and Callow Hill and Balder Punzel are some of the main ones. But yeah, I've also, my email is katie at exoticfever.com, K-A-T-Y. So happy to answer any questions. Uh, Katie, you're one of my favorite people. Thank you so much for being on today. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, we'll be in touch soon, I hope. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Katie really is the best. It was so great to get a chance to like talk and catch up with her, especially before she has gotten deep into baby land again with their newly born daughter. Here's wishing Katie and her family well. Um, For more about her and everything she's up to, you can check out the show notes. So today I'm going to talk a bit about the value of women's work in music. Um, And I'm going to start with a conversation a bit about some lists, which we'll get into in a sec. And it's interesting because I had been thinking about this for maybe a month or so. I mean, like well before that as well, but happened to hear that uh, the Get Offset episode last week which also got into this topic a bit as well. So if you want to really dig in some more, you can check that out too. So you've probably seen those like best guitarist, quote unquote, best drummer, best cowbell player, whatever lists that seem to circulate around music circles. 
Traditionally, these lists seem to focus on like the same 20 or so people who are mostly men. They're mostly white. They're mostly from like classic rock or blues, sometimes jazz if they're getting wild, right? And the, the most recent Rolling Stone list of the top 100 guitarists of all time includes just two women, Joni Mitchell at 75 and Bonnie Raitt at 89. And this summer's list from Guitar World includes a whopping 10 women, which like honestly is kind of a huge jump for a list like this. They're usually significantly fewer, but only two of those women were women of color. So the Rolling Stone list was created by a panel of 58 guitarists. So that's like different because oftentimes it's just the editors doing it. It includes Melissa Etheridge, Marnie Stern, Susan Tedeschi, and Nancy Wilson, who are all cisgender white women. And then the Guitar World, the way they did it was they provided a list of 180 guitarists to their readers to vote on by category. So it could be best overall, best blues, best metal, whatever, right? Uh, with a few like bones thrown in from the editors who got to share their favorites. And all in all, this ended up being 100 guitarists. So really 10% of this list still was women. For Rolling Stone's top 100 drummers of all time from 2016, this includes just four women, Sheila E., Janet Weiss, Meg White, and Cindy Blackman. So this is like obviously an issue. I don't think this is a huge surprise, but I want to get into some of the dynamics of this. So the lists in general are bunk for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, they're focusing on competition and creative work, which is inherently subjective and basically like the opposite to the point of art, right? <laughs> uh, two, they are, um, as mentioned already, usually highly biased in their creation. And three, the musicians featured are usually those who enjoy some level of popularity or fame already, which is often only provided to white male musicians. So, however, these lists tell one version of this, the history, which is then often shared in music media. And they also try to impart the value of the creative work of musicians. So, you know, that's why what they say is important, right? So in addition to the general bunkness I mentioned already, there are two major issues with these lists. First of all, they don't include the myriad rad women guitarists. Of course, these lists are unsurprisingly super binary. Uh, there are many, many folks who could be in the like guitar hero, quote unquote, category. But due to the fact that they aren't like in the canon, quote unquote, once again, they are, are they're not included, right? But there is an argument to be made here that often gets ignored. So what if women don't want to be like a guitar or drum or synth or whatever hero? Of course, like just like in all areas of life, many women do compete and want to do their best. But what if like due to socialization, for example, women actually don't want that? Uh, I'll note first that socialization is inherently not something that someone is born with. I just want to reiterate that. This is not about women being inherently different than men, but men and women often being uh, taught to be different. So women are socialized to be more relational, so to be less focused on the individual and in their like relationships with other people. And to be fair, the sheer wankery that might be involved in becoming a guitar hero, for example, uh, <laughs> might not be of interest. Many women simply want to write good songs and focus on self-expression rather than focusing on the like performative nature of shredding. And I say all of this as someone who actually does like to play in a sort of like shred adjacent manner, uh, even though I really don't know what I'm doing. I think it's fun. Uh, so this is like no value judgment on shredding per se. This is a judgment-free zone. But just because someone isn't shredding in the like traditional sense doesn't mean that they aren't a quote unquote guitar hero, right? Uh, or, you know, should we simply start valuing guitar heroes less? Is that what, what should be happening? Or perhaps we should put value on the type of collaborative playing that many women might uh, be more interested in doing. Like, why don't we value the amazing and beautiful work that can come out of a band or songwriting collaboration over a three-minute shred fest in the middle of a song that doesn't really add anything? It's unsurprising that this valuing of women's guitar playing or drumming or synth playing, etc., echoes their value in most other spaces. For example, women do like the majority of housework, the majority of childcare, but they aren't compensated for it. 
There's also the issue of feminization of jobs, right? Where the more women enter a particular field, the less workers in that profession gets get paid. And this is there's tons of research about this. So, for example, secretaries used to be men and they got paid more and the job was valued more in our culture. The same goes for pediatricians or family medicine compared to other doctors or professors of education versus engineering. Uh, perhaps this is one of the things that maybe male guitarists are worried about. I don't know. They're worried about getting paid less. I mean, obviously, we know musicians don't get paid, so who knows? For real, though, I, I do think it's important to think about the types of music women choose to create, how they create it, and the value attributed to it. So while there have been like some changes and greater attention to this topic, obviously, a quick glance at most of these lists or even like music magazines more generally will show you whose work is valued, right? There's no one right way to be a musician or to create music. And just because someone makes music differently does not mean it should be uh, valued less, right? Most research shows that diverse groups tend to come up with more creative solutions to problems. So if anything, those who are mixing it up might actually be adding more value rather than doing the same old thing. So let's think about all these different ways that maybe we can mix it up a little bit, right? All right. So if you are enjoying the podcast, please share, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear about it. And if you have thoughts, comments, ideas, whatever you want uh, related to the podcast, please reach out. I would love to hear them. Thanks so much for listening. 